Amen. All right, so we'll be in Jonah chapter 1 today. We're going to go through the whole chapter, uh, verses 1 to 17. God's word says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, or the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear, this is really important, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made, so the creator, the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get uh, back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. I'm the the youngest of three boys. So we have two older brothers. My oldest brother, his name is Matthew. He's nine years older than me. And my middle brother, Scott, is five years older than me. And so I had a, a unique point or or perspective of my parents' expectations long in advance of when I would arrive at the ages of my older brothers, right? I mean, we were spaced pretty far far apart uh, from kind of a normal family, usually a few years between each siblings. They would, of course, would probably say that I was the spoiled youngest brother, right? Usually the youngest one's the spoiled one. The expectations may be a little bit lower on on the younger brother, But the reality is, is that my perspective on the actions of my brothers taught me a lot of lessons. Honestly, most of them were the things that you shouldn't do, right? (laughs) Understanding the attitudes and actions, the buttons my brothers pushed. Admittedly, I I had great parents growing up. And they were also 
not slouches in the discipline category, if you get my drift. Uh, all of our rear ends found a lot of whoopings throughout the years. But my uh, beatings or, or whoopings were a, a lot fewer than my brother's, especially my middle brother. Where's my, the middle children in the room here? The middle child, right? Middle child always has a tendency to have a little bit more eyes on them. There's just something about the middle child, right? But for me, as the youngest brother, they would probably call it favoritism on my parents' part, but I claim intelligence in the application of their mistakes leading to my avoidance of the same patterns of misbehavior that they employed, or I was just more sneaky because I knew how to get away with things. Here's the thing. I learned a lot by watching all of their poor decisions, actions, their poor attitudes, that they were disciplined for. And this is exactly, as we look to Jonah, what we have in this unique prophetic writing. This book's not in, in classic like prophetic genre that we think of when we read through uh, prophecy in the Old Testament, but rather teaches us about a prophet through his history. Now I want to pause there because there's a lot of chatter and discussion that goes around the book of Jonah. I think there's too much of a focus on the fish Okay, uh, the, the greater story is just learning to not make the same mistakes that Jonah, Jonah made in avoiding God's call on his life. Now, I want to say this very clearly. I believe this is absolutely history that has happened in time, and I believe a fish ate Jonah, and he somehow miraculously, through God's provision and providence and sovereignty, stayed alive in that fish for three days. Okay, I'm not waffling from that idea. But in reality, the story's not just about that, and we get hung up on that detail. It's about the mistakes that Jonah makes and the mistakes that we should avoid in our faith walk, in our Christian life. The overarching lesson of Jonah is closely shown in my own upbringing as I look to my two older brothers and learn not to make the same mistakes that they did. We, we're going to look at, the, at Jonah's mistakes and his avoidance of God's call on his life. And we don't want to act the same way that he did in certain aspects of his life. Uh, but before we get too deep in this, I want to explain a little bit of Jonah in history. Where is he at in the timeline of Scripture? We live in a day and an age where you know, biblical knowledge is not just a given, and I want people to understand where this is at in the timeline of history. Jonah came, he's in the Old Testament, so it's before the earthly coming of our Savior Jesus, okay? Jesus existed for all, or exists for all of eternal, eternity. I want to make that clear. But he came in the flesh at a certain period of time. And so Jonah existed probably 750 to 800 years before Jesus came to earth. Another Old Testament marker that can help us with a timeline is King David. He's a famous figure in the Old Testament. Jonah probably came 150 to 200 years after the reign of King David. So we're kind of, we're getting a timeline here in an era of Israel's history that was incredibly difficult, okay? There was a period of time where Israel was a, was a united, strong kingdom under the leadership, most notably of David. That existed going into Solomon's reign. And then after that, things just kind of got crazy, and the kingdom divided into a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And if you read through, if we could just give kind of a synopsis of the kingly reigns in this time, most of the time it's just evil king, evil king, evil king, evil king, evil king. And that's where we're at with Jonah. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom, which was really just evil king after evil king. And the king that's reigning at this time with Jonah is King Jeroboam II. 
And scripture in 2 Kings chapter 14 says, very pointedly, that he was an evil ruler. He was an evil king. He wasn't a good guy. So that's where we're at in history. Jonah's comes before Jesus's earthly coming. He's after David. So just so you have a timeline of where we're at in history. But above all this, I don't want to miss this main idea this morning. I don't want to miss the the even greater lesson that we can apply to us. And, And it's the massive picture of God's gracious intervention in history to save. Okay, God does not sit back kind of in the recliner eating popcorn, seeing how things are going to unfold on earth. God intervenes in history. And we see that happen here uh, through the life of Jonah. And that's our main idea. Nothing will keep the grace of God from accomplishing its intended purpose. Okay, nothing can keep God's grace from pouring out. This is clearly taught in Jonah. God is intervening in history and is using Jonah as the agent of his grace. And God will bring about his intended purpose. I'm, I'm emphasizing that word will. It will happen. We, we see it here. We're going to skip around from chapter one and then we'll go to, to chapter three uh, in our next reading says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. It's like, God's not going to just tolerate evil to continue on. He's calling this prophet to speak truth to them and call them to repentance. And eventually, Jonah comes around and and carries out that calling in chapter 3. And the Ninevites respond in repentance. They turn to the Lord. And look what God does. God relents from his judgment and wrath. And it says this, When God saw what they did, how they, the Ninevites, turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay? Here's the thing. They deserved the wrath of God, but God didn't pour it out on them. We call that grace. It's getting something that you don't deserve. They deserved punishment and judgment and wrath, and instead God turned away from his judgment and extended grace to them because they repented. They relented of their evil ways. Here's here's the truth. God gets what he wants. God gets what he wants. He proves this point in the midst of Jonah's rebellion and Nineveh's great sin because our God is a gracious Lord. And now I want to be clear. Is he going to bring judgment and wrath? Yes. Let's not miss that point. But scripture teaches us that he is patient, amen, and loving, thank you, Lord, merciful and gracious. We've experienced this ourselves as followers of Jesus. Okay, let me say it this way. God's not just out to get you. Some of you have this kind of view of God. He, man, he's just out to get me. I didn't read my Bible this morning. For sure, I'm getting a speeding ticket this afternoon. I didn't pray. I'm sitting at my desk. I dropped that pencil over there. You know, what does that thing weigh? An ounce? I lean over. Oh, my back. It's because I didn't pray this morning. We have this view of God like he's just out. He's just out to get me whenever I mess up. You know what we call that? We call that karma. Okay. And unfortunately, karma has infiltrated the minds of many Christians. God doesn't work that way. He's not a karmaic God. Okay, he, he is gracious and merciful. In a, in a karma-like system, you kind of get what you put in, you get that back out. God doesn't work that way. Through Christ, 
doesn't give us what we deserve, which is karma. Instead, he is, again, gracious. God is gracious. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice this. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the grace of God. And so we're going to view this passage from three different perspectives, beginning here this morning with Jonah. He's our first perspective, and we're going to call him the defiant prophet. The defiant prophet. Remember, God has called Jonah to go and call out against Nineveh for their evil, and now Jonah responds. Okay, we're going to trace his perspective throughout chapter one. I got to invite you to follow along with the screens because I'm going to bounce around. We're just going from the perspective of Noah. So we got to break up the passage because there's a lot of dialogue back and forth between the sailors and Jonah. And I want you to notice as we read through this, I often talk about this. This this is a study tip for when you're reading scripture. If you see a word repeated a lot, you should circle that word. Okay, there's there's a word that's repeated over and over and over again in this first chapter, and it's the word down. Down, down, down. I would even attach to that away. Jonah runs away from the presence of God. He goes down into the ship. And you're going to see him go down, down, down. It's a picture for us of running away from God and the result of that going down, down, and down. Okay? So as I read through this, I'm going to pause a few times. I'm just getting you guys ready. We're going to, I'm going to add some commentary and comment on some different things. So you got to, let's focus. We're going to go through this together, all right? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here it is. He went what? Down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Here's another word, away from the presence of the Lord. Now I'm going to pause here. Okay, we need to gain perspective. We don't probably understand the geography of what's going on here. How far apart are these Two points, okay? So Jonah lives in the easternmost part of the Mediterranean, okay? Right on, right on the edge, what we would know is modern-day Israel or Palestine, okay? Tarshish, where is that at? I had to look it up. I had to Google it. Tarshish is all the way on the southern tip of modern-day Spain, far west of where Jonah is, Okay, probably about, I think, 2,500 miles. So if we think about the United States in the ballpark of that distance, all the way across, pretty far, isn't it? God's called Jonah to go to a place called Nineveh. We know where Nineveh is because it's, it's in modern-day Iraq. Okay, we've had a lot of involvement as a country in Iraq over the last 30 years or so. So we know that's about 500 miles east of where Jonah lives in Israel, right on the edge of the Mediterranean. East, okay, he's going to Tarshish, 2,500 miles west to the southernmost tip of Spain. Is that close? No. Okay, in fact, actually, this, this port city that he's going to is one of the furthest points west that these guys even know about. What is he doing? He's running the furthest point away from God that he can. God, you're telling me to go east? I'm going 2,500 miles west. I'm going in the opposite direction. Verse 4, 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Verse 5b, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part, there's down again, into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. When he was questioned now in verse 9 by the sailors, it says, he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Verse 11 and 12. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him. Now, I'm going to pause here. Do you hurl somebody up into the sea when you're on a boat? No. It says they hurled him into the sea, but what direction is that? What's our word? Down, right? Down into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the Lord appointed, this is God's grace, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah's going in the wrong direction, isn't he? He's going the wrong way. Now, here's the truth of the matter. We're not dealing with an evil prophet. Jonah's not evil. Jonah actually has a record of faithfulness in Scripture. Back in 2 Kings 14.25, he instructed King Jeroboam II to adjust Israel's borders to help him out. There's a record of faithfulness for Jonah towards his people. This is, this is a man for all intents and purposes who's been faithful up until this point to his call as a prophet to Israel. Even towards Jeroboam II, we establish what is an evil king. That's what Scripture says. So even towards an evil king, he spoke in truth and helped that man. And he's now called to the difficult mission of going and calling out against Nineveh. And here are some facts. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which is evil. Let's be clear about that. They've taken part in heinous crimes against humanity. They're the bad guys, right? When you're watching a movie, they're the bad guys. Jonah is instructed by the word of the Lord to call against them, and he refuses. Because as we find out later, he is, we'll find this out in a few chapters, he is certain that when the word of God comes to Nineveh, that it's going to accomplish its purpose, that they will repent. He's certain of that, and that's why he's running away from his call. Because Jonah wants against his enemies, Israel's enemy, he wants vengeance, judgment, and justice against these wicked people. And yet, the interesting thing is when we come back to King Jeroboam II, he did instruct and call him, right, to follow the Lord, an evil king during the divided kingdom era of Israel. What has Jonah done here? He's placed himself in the position of God. He gets to dole out grace where he sees fit. It's evident in his actions. Let me, let me put this to you clearly. For his people, he wants grace and mercy. But for his enemies, he wants swift justice and judgment. Even more simply, give me grace, God, but give them wrath. That's Jonah's viewpoint at this point. This is a point of caution for us. We can learn from this. As we mature in the faith, our desire must grow in witnessing to those who are furthest from the grace of God. But oftentimes our tendency can be to, to avoid great sinners at all costs, right? We're repulsed by it, so we run away. We run in the opposite direction. 
We want grace for our people, but not for those outside of our innermost circle. Beware, the Bible calls this favoritism or partiality, and Scripture has a lot to say about that. Beware of favoritism or partiality in your walk with Christ. In his, in his actions, grace is only for his people, but not others. But God has called for his people to extend his gracious call to everyone. That's what we do. We proclaim good news to everyone. Whether they be a friend or a foe. It's an important message for us today, especially for those who are mature in the faith. Because our tendency, when we get more and more mature, our our friend circle becomes what? Primarily Christians. And so we have to try to get around people who are ungodly in order to carry out the mission of God. And man, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? We must continue in the Great Commission until the the day of the Lord calls us home. Okay? There's no retirement in the Christian life or in the mission. We don't get a day off from that. And that's the, the application for this first point is that we need to embrace the cost of God's mission of grace. We need to embrace the cost of God's mission of grace. We all have the call, calling of Jonah, okay? It's not just for the pastors or the prophets. Every single Christian has been called to a great commission life. To go and call the lost to repentance in Jesus. Jesus says so in Matthew 28. Verses 18 to 20. The Bible says here, And Jesus came and said to them, Notice what he's, this is important. Okay, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does all mean in scripture? (laughs) Everything. We don't really need to do a deep study on the meaning of that word. And Jesus, I mean, it's exhaustive in heaven and earth, everywhere. He's saying, I'm over everything. I'm the authority over everything. It's been given to me. Then he says this, go Therefore, right, because of my authority, I'm now sending you out. Christian, you don't get to avoid this call. Our Lord Jesus has said that all authority rests with him, and this is what I want you to do with it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of people you're comfortable with. No. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is important, okay? We're not just seeking converts. We're seeking disciples. A convert raises their hand, walks the aisle, prays the prayer. I'm good. I walk out, but nothing really changes in my life. They're not really a follower of Jesus. Conversion is is important, but there's something that comes further here that Jesus instructs us on. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We praise God when somebody repents and places their faith and trust in Jesus, but that's not the end of our task. We're to teach them to observe everything that Christ has commanded us. And then Jesus gives us this beautiful promise. It's his words here. And behold, I am with you always. I don't have to do this on my own. You ever feel alone when you're evangelizing or witnessing to somebody? 
You ever feel alone? I do. I'm going to confess something to you this morning. It scares me. Man, it scares me to share my faith with other people. I have such a deep fear of man and rejection. But Jesus says here, I'm with you always. Spirit has filled us. For how long? (laughs) To the end of the age. Christian, Jesus is always with you as you carry out his great commission. Okay? Stop being disobedient. As your pastor, one of my primary jobs is to, is to teach you to observe all that he has commanded. We are, I would say this, I'm going to make a bold statement. We are, by and large, in our culture, failures as it, as it pertains to the Great Commission. We need to do better. We don't like to hear that. We want to get a pat on the back and say, hey, everything's going okay. Give me a participation trophy. I'm good. We need to do better in sharing our faith with the lost. We're without excuse. We have the spirit of the living God living in us, within us. We have the complete counsel of his word to guide us. We have a beautiful family to encourage us. Don't neglect your calling as a gospel proclaimer. Your job is not to transform hearts. That's the job of God. Your job is to proclaim the news, to share the gospel. We are people of the Great Commission. Would you say that word with me, Great Commission? commission. We must act accordingly. And we're not only to extend this call to those we deem should hear it. It's not up to us. But to, Jesus says here, every nation, friend or foe. From Jonah's perspective, we see pride and self-righteousness and a derail this seemingly godly prophet. He runs away from God, plummeting further and further down in disobedience until he finds himself cast overboard into the ocean. But he's, he's thrown into death but is graciously saved through the miracle of a great fish swallowing him up. God calls basically time out on science because he can, because he's the creator. And he says, this guy's not going to bubble up in the stomach acid of this fish. He's going to survive. And we're going to learn more about that next week. But God intended for this to happen. We don't need to explain it away, Christian. We can take God at his word. And say, yes, this is what God did. He could send a storm. Could he not also appoint a fish for this man to stay in? I said, there's so much more here, but I don't want us to miss the big idea of Jonah. So now we're going to look at the perspective of the fearful sailors. Perspective two. So we have the fearful sailors now. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to break this passage up kind of from there, try to get their perspective. I'm going to pause and add some comments as I go through this reading. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up, right? This is a bad storm, isn't it? Then the mariners or the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to, this is important, his God. These are what we would call idolaters, okay? They worship things other than the one true God. 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Right? They're afraid. They don't know. They don't look to the Lord God. But they take matters in their own hands, working to fix the issue. And then now they're going to confront Jonah, who's, where is he at? At this point, he's asleep down in the boat, looking at verse 6 now. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us, give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. That's God's power again. Then they said to him, tell us on, they're going to question him now. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Those are important details. He's saying God is the creator. He's over everything. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? Right? You, you fool. Why would you mess with a God like that? For, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, right? So I want to pause here. These sailors, they're beginning to understand the power of the one true God. They see it in the great storm around them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Right? Jonah tells them, I'm going to pause here. Jonah tells them to throw him overboard and they respond. What's their response initially? Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. All right? So pausing again. Here, their fear, their fearful men, is driving them to work to save themselves. We don't want to mess with this guy. He's connected to the one true God that's over all things. So we're going to row to get back to dry land. We don't want to make this God angry. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have, uh, have done as it pleased you. Fear grips the heart of these sailors, and their perspective grants us a glimpse into navigating life's struggles apart from God. That's what they picture for us. And instead, navigating in our own strength and knowledge. First, what do they do? They look to idolatrous means to save them, things outside of God. For them, it was their, I always say, it's their little G gods, right? It's not capitalized in the passage. Then they work to appease those gods, to please them. Right? They throw the, the uh, cargo overboard. So perhaps they're trying to please their gods or they're just working to make the load lighter so the, the ship doesn't come apart as fast. They work, they're working hard to get themselves out of this impossible situation, throwing the extra weight overboard. Then they, they begin to start moving in the, in the right direction, seeking true answers. Right? The problems aren't going away. They need, this is important, they need to be saved, don't they? They question the sleeper, Jonah. They find their answer. The Lord has brought this great storm or tempest upon them, and it's Jonah's fault. Looking back real quick to Jonah's perspective, 
This is also a lesson we have from his perspective. In his mind, he would, at this point, he could have said, hey, here's the issue, guys. I ran away from the presence of the Lord. I need to go preach at Nineveh. Let's head back to Joppa. But he didn't. He's still in rebellion against God. He says, hey, just throw me into the sea. What is he saying? Just kill me. You ever been at the beach and got caught in a riptide? Okay, if you've ever been caught in a riptide, it's terrifying. Water is powerful. Maybe you've, been, you've walked out into a stream and you thought it was moving a little bit slower than you anticipated and it takes you off your feet and knocks you down on the rocks. If you're out in the ocean and you get caught in a riptide, I've been caught in a riptide, you get sucked under and sucked out into further out in the sea and you freak out and you start swimming and panicking. Can you imagine this is a full-scale storm that's threatening to rip apart a ship? Jonah's saying, just throw me in and kill me. It's my fault. He doesn't know at this point that the Lord had appointed a fish to save him. Again, he doesn't tell him to take him back to the port. This is an important lesson we find in Jonah here. He concedes that he has out-sinned the grace of God. It's finished for me. I'm done. Why would, why would God want anything to do with me? I don't deserve his grace. Just throw me overboard. I deserve to die in the storm. You ever been at that point before? You ever felt like that? Man, I just, I know this mistake was the one. It was the one where God's just like, hey, get out. But what does God do? He saves them. How does he save them? Sends the miracle of the fish to swallow him up and hold him safe for three days. The sailors then fear the outcome of killing God's servant. In their mind also, he's as good as dead in the stormy sea if they cast him over. But ultimately, they, they give in, right? They cast him over the side. It's a hopeless situation. This is the last ditch effort. Let's throw this guy into the sea and see if it helps. Plunging Jonah to certain death. In their, in their earthly fear, life's greatest obstacle has come to them. And they finally concede to substitute Jonah in their place to be saved from the great storm. Are we starting to see Jesus in this a little bit? No? Okay. <laughs> this is what we learn from the sailors. It's our application. We want to embrace a healthy fear of the Lord. We want to embrace a healthy fear of the Lord. They respond to Jonah's instruction in this way in verses 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then what's the response? Like, oh, this God is for reals, right? The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I think we can assume they were transformed. They saw God for who he is. They made a vow to follow after him. They've become believers in the one true God. Jonah may be imperfect, but he is still a picture of Jesus for us. Jonah willingly substitutes himself on behalf of the sailors. He willingly lays down his life for these men he barely knows. Now the difference is Jonah is a sinner, isn't he? He's run away from the presence of God. 
Jesus, though, willingly laid down his life for his people in his perfection. He didn't deserve death. But in his love and mercy and grace, he willingly laid down his life. He came and lived in perfection. He lived in full obedience to the will and law of God unto death on a cross, a criminal's death. And he shed his blood. He took on the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve. And he went into the grave for how many days? Three days. How many days was Jonah in the belly of that fish? That's interesting. And Jonah was, we'll get to this next week, he's spit out on the beach. Jesus rolled the stone away and came out by the power of God's spirit in victory over sin and death. That's our Lord and Savior. How many of you are like these sailors? You're looking everywhere for answers. You're working your your fingers down to the bone to figure out your problems, escape the issues of everyday life, right? No purpose, no meaning, no relief. You're just going through the motions of life. You're just treading water and, and you're throwing the extra weight overboard. Stop running from the answer. Listen to God's word. Psalm 145, 18 and 19 says this. The Lord is near to all who, what does it say? Call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desire of those who, here's this word, fear him. These sailors fear the Lord. He also hears their cry, this is important, and saves them. God is so good to us, isn't he? And we see in Jonah that we have, we can attach this word to every one of Jesus' works. It's just better. It's better than everything we see in the Old Testament. Jesus is the better substitute than Jonah. Because his his substitutionary death didn't just save us from a storm. It It saved us from an eternal wrath and judgment of God. And not just that, it saved us to an eternal relationship in the presence of God. That's amazing. When we deserve death, God gives us life. And that brings us to our third perspective. We see the gracious Lord. The gracious Lord. Man, I'm so thankful there's not a service after this one so I can just go as long as I want. (laughs) I don't want you to to miss the grace of God in this passage by focusing on the the human mistakes too much. Okay, we, we see his grace in a number of ways in this passage, just right here quickly in, in kind of a nutshell for us. Beginning at, at the beginning of this, this chapter, he desires to extend a gracious call to Nineveh through Jonah. That's God's grace. He didn't need to do that. He could have just let them perish. He could have poured out his wrath, but he gives them an opportunity. Okay, I want you to, I'm going to pause here. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have an opportunity to change that today. The Bible calls you to repent. What does that mean? To change your direction and follow after Christ. It's the only answer to everything you face. That's God's grace. What's another way? He provides a a great fish to save Jonah from the sea. He could have let the sailors just throw him over and then Jonah just dies. He deserves it. God's powerful enough. He can raise up another guy to go and talk in, in Nineveh. But he wanted Jonah to do it. He 
appointed not only that fish, but he appointed Jonah as his means of grace to go and preach to these wicked people. It's the grace of God. What's another way we see the grace of the Lord? He he brings great fear to the sailors through the storm so that they ultimately end up worshiping and vowing their lives to the Lord. This is how amazing God is that he can use Jonah's sin and these guys are saved through Jonah's sin. Isn't that amazing that God can do that kind of stuff? Because this guy messed up and happened to be on this boat. God orchestrates all these events and now they become God-fearing men. It's his grace. And he saves them. I want to keep using this word. He saves them through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jonah, a picture of the gospel for us today. It reminds us of Jesus. God's grace is all over this passage, isn't it? It's all over this book. I keep going back to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, 8 and 9 says this. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see that in chapter 1, don't we? The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Above all, the the application to go and speak the truth of God's word to those far from you, like like Jonah is called to, is is what that's what we're called to do. We're called to be people of the Great Commission. We're called to be people like these sailors who rightfully, I'm going to use the word fear, rightfully fear the Lord. There's too many pulpits that substitute that word because they're afraid of it. We have to rightly have fear and reverence for God because he's powerful. Look at what he's doing in this passage. He's sending a storm. He's appointing a fish. Vow your life to him as the sailors did. In the midst of all of this focus on us, though, let's not lose focus of our great Lord. He's good. We see that here. And kind. And so our final application is to worship God with everything we have. Worship the God of heaven. It says here in the passage, who made the sea and dry land. What does that mean? Everything. He spoke it into existence. Psalm 145, again, 1 to 3. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Amen? Amen. Family, don't miss the overarching point. Yes, go and share Jesus. Yes, fear the Lord. Worship God, though, for who he is, our good and gracious Father.